0: In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating, and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana, and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to the Saha Podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great guest for you today. Before I introduce her, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if you enjoy today's conversation, like, comment, and share it. My guest today is Epo Pam, the Senior Gender Advisor with the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Welcome, Epo, to the show today.
1: Thanks Ruth, pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I know we've been trying to do this for quite some time, so I'm excited <laughs> that we've been able to find the time.
1: Yes, we're both very busy. Um, so I, I am full of admiration for you that with your very busy schedule, you can still manage to, to put all of this uh, podcasts into uh, action.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a passion of mine and I kind of feel I just have to find the time to do it. Um, so tell me about yourself. What do you do? Tell me about your job. What does a typical day look like
1: for you? So um, I come from a refugee background, uh, I was born in Vietnam and um, came to Australia as a refugee in one of the... Um, Earliest uh, boat uh, boat people to uh, to leave uh, Vietnam uh, during the war, and um, so that experience I think really shapes who I am and and the values that I um, you know bring forward to the world. Um, I am Australian um, in terms of my citizenship, uh, but currently living in New York. Um, and I guess my typical day uh, is. I get up. I have a fantastic cup of coffee made by my partner, and uh, this is around right. six thirty. I scroll through Twitter. This is my daily routine, just to check, you know, what's happening in the world, um, and you know, and then I take it from there. And then I, you know, really get into the workday very early, from seven in the morning, reviewing documents, um, checking what the trends and issues are. And because I work in uh, humanitarian crises, um, it's around uh, monitoring, you know, the situations in the various emergencies in the world, uh, looking for uh, opportunities to promote issues around gender equality uh, and to really amplify the um, experiences of um, women and girls in crises. So I guess um, that leads me to um, the point about what I do for work, which is I'm a senior gender advisor. Yeah. Um, and often people say, what does a senior gender advisor do you know, in emergencies? Right?
0: Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and, uh, and I guess it's several folds. But for me, it's very much trying to um, be that advocate, um, be that voice um, to really amplify uh, the experiences of women and girls in crisis and to, uh, to, to bring, uh, you know, attention to the issues and, you know, what else we should be thinking about, um, you know, in these uh, crises, given that, um, you know, in all of the emergencies we see in the world, um, women and girls are so disproportionately impacted. And, you know, I guess that also comes down to the fact that in peacetime um, they are already experiencing so many um difficulties and, and challenges. Um so of course in crises that gets further exacerbated. So what can we do, you know, as people who work in these spaces to bring more attention to their experiences and and, and also their leadership. You know, what is it that communities and in particular women are doing to address some of the needs and the issues that, that they're experiencing.
0: Right. And um and maybe as actually as I thinking about um, speaking to you, I normally ask this general question, like, what are the key humanitarian challenges? What are the key consequences of humanitarian challenges? But I wonder if we can just really zoom in on women and girls. You know, especially given that you're you know you're the senior gender advisor for OCHA. But just talk to me about like what are some of the key challenges for women and girls? Facing a humanitarian crisis.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and thanks for, for the question, Ruth. Um, I guess I'm still quite concerned about, um, you know, the lack of just basic needs, um, you know, for women and girls. And, you know, a primary example is women's access or women and girls' access to hygiene materials now it's 2022, and I find it a little bit concerning that we're still talking about, you know, women and girls having access to something as basic and fundamental, you know, as um, sanitary materials. Um, and of course, many of us take this for granted. But in an emergency, um, and in many of the places that we work in, uh, when people are fleeing without any resources. Um, the lack of these materials can really hinder the participation of women and girls in just daily lives. Um, And to give you an example, you know, I was in um, Ethiopia on a support mission. And when I talked to women and girls that were in displacement camps, and when I talked to the local service providers about, you know, what are the, you know, what's the most urgent pressing need that you have at the moment? And two critical issues arose. Um, And this resonates not only in Ethiopia, in many different places, but firstly, this issue of the lack of hygiene materials was a big impediment. You know, women would say that they spend days in their um, shelters or in their tents when they are menstruating because they don't have materials and they're too embarrassed to go outside in in case they leak. Um, You know, girls would say, you know, with a lot of embarrassment that they don't go to school when they have their period. So that's, you know, three to five days. But girls are missing uh, from going uh, to school because they don't have access to these very basic things. Um, And I think, you know, that's to do with the the lack of priority that we give to uh, women and girls' needs. Um, And if there is any, um, if there's anything to be sacrificed in terms of services or products, this is the first thing that um, you know is omitted from, say, a, a kit that goes to a family. Um, so I do think that you know it's it's quite alarming that we're still talking about this issue. And then the second, I think, most urgent issue is the is around gender-based violence and in particular sexual violence. We see this a lot in emergencies because, in reality, you know across the world, it's still one in three women who are experiencing or who have experienced some form of violence in their lives. And so, you know, when you go into a crisis situation, this is further compounded. Um, We see this situation at the moment in Haiti, uh, for example, where gang violence, um, you know, uh, is, is further exacerbating women and girls' exposure to sexual violence. Where sexual violence is being used um, as a strategy to punish rival gangs, um, you know, where sexual violence um is used as a way to control women. And also women engage in um you know sexual relationships with people who are wielding power because that's their means to survive. Um, so just to 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 give one example. But, you know, gang violence and and, um, gang sexual violence is a very extreme end. We also have, um, you know, violence that women and girls are experiencing every day in a displaced setting, you know, when they're walking from, you know, their campsite to the latrines, um, you know, when they're walking to seek water or food. And especially now with drought and with, you know, climate events further uh making those situations worse um women and girls are finding that they're having to walk even longer distances which means that they're exposed to banditry violence um and many forms of uh, gender based violence as well
0: yeah no and 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 gender based violence sexual violence i know um we do talk a lot about um But I also know, especially, and part of the reason I really do this project, part of the reason I'm passionate about storytelling is that I don't think um, the numbers that we have, the reports that go out, really help us understand the trauma of sexual violence, of gender-based violence. And so, you know, to me, getting those stories that help us feel it in some mm-hmm. way i find them powerful but going back to this question of, of hygiene and it is always on my mind and and you know of course number one i am a woman but and in my own experience is nothing in comparison but i often find like i just came back from pakistan and had to be on the road for hours and hours and I was in my period and I could not imagine anything more stressful in that moment for me than being in a car with male colleagues Mm -hmm. and needing to use the bathroom every hour or so Mm -hmm. on the road and at the same time listening to women and young girls who had been displaced by the floods Mm -hmm. telling me they're using leaves yeah. Because they don't have, you know, tampons or sanitary towels or, you know, it's quite, and I don't think we talk enough about it. Absolutely. And and sometimes I feel even in some cultures, people are embarrassed to talk about periods. Uh-huh. It's like that part of life that, we, I don't know, somehow we think it doesn't exist.
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Because it's women's issues. And, uh, you know, and and I think to this point uh, that you raise in terms of we don't talk about it enough, absolutely agree. You know, sometimes I jokingly out of anger say that should be the first issue for any emergency, you know, for any humanitarian stakeholder, for any humanitarian leader, the humanitarian country team, first order of business should be do we have hygiene materials for women and girls? Can we just get this issue over and done with before we move on to access and negotiating with the government and whatever else that we discuss? Um, But it doesn't have that, uh, that prioritization. And I think that renders women and girls and their needs and their experiences invisible. And if it's invisible, then it doesn't get prioritized. Then we don't mobilize resources. You know, I go into a room and I talk about sanitary uh, materials and it's like you could just see the room go, oh, really, why are we talking about this? This can't be that important. Um, And it actually, it really is. I think it's the most urgent issue, um, you know, in in a crisis because it's impacting half of the population, you know, for a quarter of a month <laughs> that they're having to contend yeah, right. with. I mean, it's not a luxury to have access to these materials. Um, and so I do think it hinders how someone can participate and engage in decision-making or in the care of their families or in the care of their communities, if they can't even have access to things um, that help them care for themselves. And so I do think, you know, that's why I, I, I think that we are failing uh, as a humanitarian system to women and girls because this fundamental, basic need is not being met.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and of course, you know, you also articulated it very well. It's not just that, you know, we are in our periods and 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 we can cope by, you know. You can't go to school if you're a child. You can't go to the market, you know, if you, you can't, you know, access your livelihoods and income. But it's also a question of dignity, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, that's, for me, one of the things that women and girls want. You know, they want to be self-reliant. You know, they want to be able to determine their own lives. Um, and it's really hard to do that when you don't have even the most basic means.
0: Yeah, and I know because um, one of the things I always think a lot about, especially for me as a woman, um, you know, we have all of these issues, and you've said it. You know, domestic violence or violence generally against women is a problem globally, and so when we end up in conflict situations, it just is exacerbated. But I do want to ask you a, a question as well, though, around gender equality and and, and and gender inequality and how that is also exacerbated when we are, you know, in this humanitarian crisis.
1: Um, yeah, you know, I think gender-based violence is something that is more visible because it's tangible, right? We can see, we hear the stories. Um, But when it comes to other forms of inequality, you know, women not being able to, you know, dress how they want, um, women not being at the decision making table, um, you know, to inform humanitarians like us about what their needs are, um, you know, how they think the humanitarian response should be um, or what kind of livelihoods. So not being able to participate, I think, is a critical um area of inequality and right now in the humanitarian sector we're still very male dominated um and so when you're so male dominated um there are you know locations that we work in um or that i visited where you know it's mostly men and so when you're the one woman you know trying to you know, raise particular issues, it's, it becomes a bit more challenging. So I think, you know, when we talk about gender, um, you know, inequalities, it's around trying to give visibility to some of those um, different experiences, you know, of both men and women and what their needs are. And I guess that's what we try to do, or what I try to do in the humanitarian space is to really foster better gender analysis you know so that we can understand all of these different dimensions you know how are different groups of women uh, impacted and it's actually worse for women and girls with disabilities um, because they aren't able to access services because of restricted mobility um you know adolescent girls again you know very much missing from decision making because they fall you know between being an adult, uh, having responsibilities, um, you know, and being considered a child. But in many contexts, uh, child marriage um, is an experience for many girls who are between 13 and 18. And so, you know, being forced to grow up, you know, being forced to be an adult, being forced to have children um, way before you're ready, um, I think is a a huge burden, um, you know, on, on women and girls. Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to, um, some of these broader issues, they don't get enough, um, attention, you know, this gender dimension, you know, how women and girls are having particular experiences and back to the issue of the menstrual hygiene. This is a totally, um, you know, gendered issue, you know, it is around women's access to resources. Um, and we're, we're just really failing on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you're also touching upon diversity, I guess, and, and and why it is important. I just know that I just had this experience just recently when I was in this um, room full of uh, male colleagues and decision-makers talking about maternal health
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and just trying to, in my mind, wrap my head around, you know, how it is that for such an important discussion where women really should have, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the most input. And and then what we miss, right, um, by not having the right analysis, by not having the right solutions, mm-hmm. and suddenly, um, yeah.
1: And having those different, you know, perspectives, right? Uh, I remember mm-hmm. once, uh, you know, working uh, in, in a setting where, Uh, One colleague said to me, you know, was telling me this story of not having um, a a female toilet because it was all the team was all men before she turned up. Um, And when she said, you know, I think we need a trash bin in the bathroom, the the, the shared bathroom, they all were so perplexed as to I don't understand why you would need a trash bin in there. And, you know, (laughs) she had to explain um, and then they all went, oh, my goodness, they just didn't see it because that was not their lived experience, you know. So I think um, to, to your point about why diversity and different perspectives at a decision making uh, level is so critical because it brings in these different dimensions that, you know, perhaps others don't see. And whether that's, you know, because yeah. of your gender, because of your, um, you know, role in society, because of your age, um, so many different factors
0: yeah and what can we do to improve this you had to choose one two things that we can do to change the lives of millions of women and girls caught up in humanitarian crisis what would that be for you
1: you know i i can't reduce it to any one thing there's like so many things we need to do um but i think firstly it's listening and taking action Because I think, you know, often I'm so tired of this rhetoric of, you know, we need to listen to women or we need to listen to the affected communities. No, we don't need to just listen. We actually need to do a lot more. Communities don't want you to just listen to them, right? Women want you to listen to the experiences and then use that to shape policy, to shape programs, to make sure it's funded, to make sure they get, you know, their sanitary materials. They do not want you to listen, go away and do nothing. And I think, you know, so for me, it's, it goes beyond listening. It's about um, responding, you know, so how do we actively listen to uh, women and girls and respond to their needs in a way that is meaningful. And when I say meaningful, it's about trying to engage them and to bring them to the decision making table. Because women and girls, you know, are not just, you know, victims are not just experiencing inequalities, but they are, you know, survivors, Uh, they are agents of change, you know, they are leaders in their communities, formal or informal, Um, and we need to be leveraging that so much more. So I think, you know, for me, you know, listening, responding, um, and promoting that leadership.
0: Right. And I guess to me, also, you're touching upon, you know, giving women and girls voices. And, and uh, I mean, this is one of the things I'm really, really obsessed with, as you know, mm. um, the power of agency um, and making sure that to, the, you know, to, to the, the most that we can, that actually people can have the space to tell their stories the way they want to tell them. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, giving space to people to tell their stories and allow those stories to inform our action. Uh, Because I think, you know, bringing people to an event to speak so that we can listen is not enough. Um, And I feel that, you know, we do that a lot in our sector. And sometimes I feel like communities should be pushing back and saying, actually, no, I'm not going to come and tell you what my needs are anymore. You know what they are. You need to now just take action. Um,
0: Yeah. And I agree with you, but sometimes I want to push back on this a little bit um, in a sense that I feel, yes, we do bring people affected by crisis, you know, women, refugees, internally displaced men, children, But I tend to feel like we bring them to help us with a narrative that is in many ways already predetermined. And so often I wonder, is this what this person wants to talk about Mm -hmm. right now? Is this the only part of their story that they Mm -hmm. want to tell to the Security Council? Because I often find like, yeah, we can talk about the need for hygiene products or food or water. But sometimes I wonder, is this what this person wants to talk about? Mm -hmm. And is this the only aspect? Like, has their life just come down to these needs?
1: Absolutely. And it's very interesting you say that. Um, And this is where I have, you know, um, a challenge with doing humanitarian work. Because I think, you know, we're so siloed or a little bit narrow in the way that we think about humanitarian action. Because when I talk to communities, they're not talking in just these basic needs, right? When you talk to people, you know, what is it that you want? They're saying, I want a better future. You know, I want opportunities. I want to make decisions about my own life. You know, I want an education. Uh, I want to learn new skills, you know. And so whether you put that in the bucket of development or in the bucket of humanitarian action, that's for you, but for the for the person having those experiences, they're talking in broad terms, you know, what is it that they want, you know, in life and that's, you know, peace, security and opportunities um, and rights because that's, you know, often people say, yeah, I, I just want the right to live with, you know, dignity and, and the right to yeah. you know, have freedom of movement. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. No, and this I think is a good moment to segue into a little bit of storytelling. Um, And so, you know, of course, in the the podcast, in this conversation, I like to talk about humanitarian challenges, but I also like to talk about stories, your own personal stories, um, stories of people you've met along the way in your career, but also a book set in a humanitarian crisis that has impacted you or that you've thought a lot about. Mm -hmm. Um, So do you have any story, any book set in a humanitarian crisis that you know, has stayed with you? And uh-huh. what would that book be?
1: I am profoundly affected by a book called A Fine Balance um, by Rohington um, Mystery. And this was a book written, I think, in the in the mid-90s um, and, you know, set in uh, the 70s in, you know, political turmoil um, in India and it centers around you know four characters you know living and trying to survive in, in their uh, slums uh, you know in, in India and all of the um, you know experiences and, and challenges that they they have. And I remember this book because I had to take a day off after I finished the book because I was so sad and depressed. And no book has ever made me feel that way. And this is how it really affected me. I just, I just remember finishing this book and saying, "What the hell was this about? Like, why is this so awful? Why is the world so awful? You know, um, it's just one bad thing after the other for these characters." But of course, you know, on on reflection, and you know, when I read it again, yes, the anger was still there. But I also saw these glimmers of hopes, um, you know, for these people and the tremendous resilience and the dignity with which they tried to live their lives, even in the the most, you know, horrible of circumstances. Um, And so it really, you know, for me, it really resonates with why I choose to do this work. And, you know, and when I say this work, it's not humanitarian work, but it's social justice um, because I started my career, you know, working with uh, young people as a youth worker, mm-hmm. um, you know, working with young people who've been in detention centers, um, you know, who have had a criminal uh, record, who were homeless, who were on drugs. Um, so really seeing the, you know, the systemic um, issues all the structures in society that have led to, you know, young people being so uh, downtrodden. And so this book really resonates in highlighting, you know, the opportunities or the lack of opportunities that people have um, determine, you know, the the outcomes. Um, And for me, it makes me reflect on, I could have had any of those lives if not for the opportunities you know, so what people really want and need and what we need to be fostering are opportunities for, you know, for for people to, you know, get on with their lives. And when I say opportunities, those opportunities are not just found in humanitarian spaces. Actually, those opportunities are connected to development work, connected to peace and security. You know, how do we work and engage with you know, governments and societies in a way that helps economic development, you know, helps communities to, uh, to, to, to have, um, you know, possibilities of, you know, education and, and livelihoods, um, you know, and growth for themselves. And so, you know, I, I constantly think about this book because of the interplay, or I guess this balance between tragedy, you know, and hope. You know, that there is mm-hmm. always hope and dignity, um, even in these terrible um, circumstances. And what what redeems these situations for me are the people and the connections people have with each other. And so these four characters found each other and remained connected Um and, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that really stood out um, when I was reading it again uh, a couple of months ago was there's a scene where, um, so basically they're all tailors, right? And they live in this, you know, mm-hmm. little house. And um, after they make the, the clothes for, you know, uh, whoever is delivering th- the work, they keep the leftover fabrics And Dina, the main character, is weaving a quilt from all of these little pieces Mm -hmm. of fabric. But actually uh, in one of the scenes, they're going, oh, that piece of fabric, oh, that was the day that, you know, we ate at, you know, that cafe. You know, oh, that fabric Mm -hmm. was the day that we got beaten up. So the little pieces of fabric were telling stories and was connecting, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of their life experiences, um, you know, over how, you know, how, how, however long it was. Um, and I think that was just really profound for me because it's, you know, it's really reinforcing that we're all made up of all of these little stories, you know, good and bad. Um, and one of the characters, I can't remember which one right now, but was saying, oh, that was a really bad moment that fabric that triggers for me. Um, and Dina says, yeah, I think we can, we can remove that if you like. And he goes, no, like it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the same if you remove it. Right. So basically, you know, it just speaks to this resilience that, yes, you have to have these, you know, negative experiences connected to all of these other positive experiences. Um, and all of this shape, you know, who you are. So, um, yeah. So I just really like the book because of. You know, the stories that it tells about, you know, people and their hopes and desires Mm -hmm. and that everyone clings, you know, even when they're despairing, is clinging to some kind of hope. Um, And yes, so rereading it again, you know, gave me at least that. (laughs) So I didn't have to take a day before (laughs) the second time around. Right.
0: No, I I've read a fine balance, but I've read it a long, long time ago and I think like you to me and I always want to read it again. It's such a big book too. Mm. But it is that profound sadness and I remember what really stood out for me is that and this is now from my memory of the story, mm. but I just remember being impacted by you know one bad thing happening to these characters and feeling mm. like they just never got a break or even when they got those moments of breaks, they were so momentary Absolutely. and, and that I found extremely heartbreaking, you know, but yes, tell me, it, so, I mean, think, mm-hmm. thinking about a fine balance as well um, and, 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 and storytelling and fiction, did you, is there anything that this book you feel taught you or when you read it or when you think about it?
1: um i read the book in the 90s and this was when i was starting my career as a as a youth worker and i think that you know that's also why it's had such an impact on me because i was very much around um you know working as an activist working around social justice um and the book for me was a a stark reminder of you know why i do this work you know it was affirming um the, the, the values that I want to bring into the world as, as you know, we started in, in the conversation. Um, and, and for me, it's around, yes, you have to be angry. Um, you know, you can't be doing just social justice work if you're not angry. You know, we have to be angry and we have to channel that anger into some kind of action. So for me, my very strong reaction to it is what stays with me because that's anger is where is is my starting point for anything um and i i actually nurture that and i think it's healthy because you know to do what i yeah. do to push for gender equality to promote women's rights you know in so many different contexts um and and getting constant pushback um, you know every step forward is three four, you know three steps backwards um, can be quite uh disheartening, and so the the anger you know keeps me going um and so for yeah. me, the book really cements that really cements that you know desire to to really make change
0: yeah no, and um going to slowly start wrapping up for us, so maybe I have just a couple or three more questions for you. Is, you know, if you think about any situation, any person through your work that has has had a profound impact on you, what is that situation? Who is that person?
1: Um, I once worked. Actually, uh, one of my first supervisors um, is a very beautiful human being that taught me so much about being open, and not judging people. Uh, He was a hippie. He uh, was a youth worker. Um, uh, He was just very, um, I can't find the right word, but he was Christian. And so I think with that, I'm an atheist. So, uh, you know, working with someone who, you know, was very open about, you know, being a person of God at the time was a little bit confronting, you know. Um, But as I worked with this person, he was no longer, you know, somebody who was Christian. He actually displayed in action the values, um, you know, through through his church, basically. So he was kind, he was generous, um, you know, and promoted social justice and was actually a very progressive person. So that for me was a, that challenged me because it taught me or reminded me, I guess, to not judge people because of, you know, a particular religion or a particular label um, you know I had all of these stereotypes about him being a hippie and then when he said it was Christian um, and so it was the first time that I had to check myself and my own preconceptions um, and you know I constantly go back to him and um, you know when I have moments uh, you know where I'm being prejudiced you know to remind myself yeah. that yeah like you know of course we're all, we all have our biases but it's you know this was a prime example of you know judging someone and being totally wrong so you know so that's yeah. that's one person uh in in my life that uh you know that taught me a lot about prejudice and, and bias
0: yeah and thank you for sharing this story and this experience of this beautiful human i think we all need beautiful humans who inspire us to be better versions of ourselves and my last question for you, April, is, um, you know, is there any action that you can think about if someone, whoever will listen to our conversation, if there was one action that they could take to improve the lives of women and girls caught up in humanitarian crisis, what would that action be for you?
1: Um, I... Really think going back to the earlier points, um, you know, that we that we've talked about, people need to be making visible the experiences and the voices and the participation of women and girls, you know, we need to all be champions, um, you know, for women and girls and, and their experiences given that you know, this is half of the population of the world. So how can we all be much more you know, stronger um, you know, in the way that we speak to these issues um, and the way in which we um, you know, promote the responses to them? So you know, I was uh, saying earlier that you know, I think any and every humanitarian should have you know, menstrual health or menstrual hygiene as the first order of business actually that's if we actually did that that's a really good start
0: good thank you um do you have any questions for me
1: um no uh but thank you so much for the conversation um you know i feel like could have talked a lot more on so many different so many different issues
0: well i know i know and of course i'm happy to invite you back (laughs) another time but thank you so much for for making the time i know you're extremely busy i know you're traveling tomorrow so thank you so much and it's really been a pleasure to speak with you
1: and thank you so much
0: thank you for listening to my conversation with apple if you've enjoyed this conversation please like comment, share, and subscribe to my YouTube channel at Saha Podcast. I'd like to thank Jamal Swift, my co-producer, and the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you. Goodbye.